Welcome to another episode of All Beat Tone. Today's guest is broadcaster, author and Dodds fan, Ali Begg. This is a wonderful chat about life as a Dodds fan and it was great to hear Ali share his stories and memories. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review. It would really help us out. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Okay, welcome to this episode of Open Dawn. Delighted to welcome Ali Begg to the podcast. Ali, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure, Paul. Thank you for having me. So let's just start right as a youth. What's your what's your earliest memories of football and, and, and the Dons, really? My earliest memories of football was when we were actually living in Holland. So my father moved us to Holland in 1974 because he took up a job near Maastricht Airport. So we lived there until 1979, and that's when we moved to Aberdeen. But my first memory is my father shouting and screaming when Archie Gemmel scored that goal against Holland in the World Cup in Argentina. And I was still relatively young and didn't really, it was just before my sixth birthday, and I couldn't really understand why he was shouting and screaming. And he sat me on his lap and we watched the game together. And that was really my first experience of watching a football match. And then we moved to Aberdeen and my father would sit around the breakfast table before heading to work. He worked out at Dice Airport, Aberdeen Airport, and he would sit and read the press and journal and wax lyrical about this football club that had just won the league championship and what a big thing it was at the time. And just through that, Paul, I just started to take an interest in myself and my my dad would watch Scott Sport and Sports Scene and allow me to stay up on a Saturday night to watch Sports Scene. And that's when I really started to become familiar with the Aberdeen players and instantly started to recognise your Willie Millers and your Gordon Strachans and your Mark McGee's and obviously Sir Alex Ferguson. And, and from there, mate, it just became a passion of mine until eventually my dad took me to my first game and towards the end of the 1980-81 season. So that's where it really all began. Do you uh, have a lot of memories of that first game, like where you were sitting, anything I like do. that? I do, I do. Yeah, it's, it's a memory that's never really faded. I remember walking up to Todry Street. We sat in the main stand adjacent to the, the paddock goal. So I remember you had to lift me over the turnstiles. I remember that quite vividly. And as we made our way up into the stand, I was actually quite surprised how quiet it was because it was the last game of the season against Kilmarnock and it was a dead rubber. And if my memory serves me correct, I think Kilmarnock had already been relegated by that time. So the game had no meaning. And I was just surprised how quiet it was because we got into the stadium about 25 minutes before kickoff. But I can still hear the sound of the seagulls And we took our seats and there was a few people dotted about and Aberdeen eventually lost the game 2-0. And I still have vivid memories of the the old guys behind us effing and blinding at how bad Aberdeen played that day. And my father trying to cover my ears. And at one point he actually turned around to the old guy and asked him to sort of tone down his language a bit because it was rather colourful. (laughs) Um, but that it's a day I've never forgotten I can still I still have that image in my head when I came up the stairs and faced the stadium for the first time and the colours of the the south stand and just the noise of the eagle that story the noise of the eagles the noise of the the seagulls and the vastness of the beach end because it was I would say it was it was only a quarter full by the time we we got into the stadium and just seeing the rows and rows of benches and just sporadic people spread about. So I've never forgotten it. I really haven't. It does stick with you. I've, I've said before that I think Petaudry has this unique um, way for a first game for me. Like my first game, I sat in the South Stand. So I've always got that memory of going down Maryland Road, going in the, in the turnstiles and then going up the stairs and then mm. being at that corner and it just the whole stadium's just in front of you from each side and it just it just 
won't leave. If I ever have children, I will be bringing them to Petaudry and then we'll be going in the South Stand and going up that way. If Petaudry is still a thing for the time I have children, yeah. of course. That's, that, I decided to do that with my own kids because as a, as a youngster, I always sat in the paddock with my, my neighbours and occasionally I would go in with my mum and dad. But because my father took me to my first game in the main stand, I wanted to carry on that tradition. So I took my kids to their first game and we actually sat in the identical seats to where my right. father first took me. It was just a nostalgic thing more than anything else. But I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, that's that's something that football gives you, though, that nostalgia, that, that memories. This is one of the reasons that I, I started doing this, just for those memories. And, mm. you know, I've been really lucky to be able to speak to a lot of people so far. And just the, the memories that they've and then seeing those memories that other people have as well. And like how everybody's just linked by this one thing. It just, yeah. it's just phenomenal to me. Yeah. The, um, I was reading that you, you played football as a youngster as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at uh, teenage level, uh, did you, wh who, who were you playing for? Do you know? So I first started playing for my primary school. So that was my first adventure into actually playing football. So my local village school, Newborough Mathers. And then when I went up to Ellen Academy, the secondary school, a couple of friends asked me to come and join their boys club. So I ended up playing for Ochter Ellen Boys Club in a sort of a local Sunday boys league, boys club league. And again, I've never forgotten my first game because I played with Derek Adams that day. And Derek is a, is, a, is a lifelong friend of mine. We've known each other since he was nine years old and I was... I was uh, nearly 13 and we were playing at under 13 level because the boys club had two age levels, under 13s and under 15s. And the referee that day was Derek's dad, George Adams, who obviously was affiliated with Aberdeen Football Club at the time, which I didn't actually know. Thankfully, I actually had quite a good game that day. And uh, yeah, I played for Octorellan for, I think it was three seasons in the end. And when I went to the academy, those same friends were also playing for Dice Boys Club in Aberdeen. So they asked me to come along and I ended up actually playing for Dice Boys Club for two or three seasons. And uh, I had a fantastic time there and I absolutely loved it. And a guy that I know has just written a book about Dice Boys Club and I did not appreciate all the players who played for Dice Boys Club over the years who actually went on to play professionally. I was selected to play for Stonywood Thistle in the Aberdeen International Football Festival in 1987. And we won at our age group under 15s. We actually won the tournament, which was a really big thing at the time. So from there, I was actually asked to then sign for Stonywood Thistle Boys Club, who were obviously a really decent team at that time. I would say that Dice Boys Club were probably uh, sorry, D-Side Boys Club were probably the best team in the league, followed probably by us and then Aberdeen Lads Club. So there were some really, really good teams in that league. And I, I ended up playing with Stonywood for, again, two or three seasons until I actually uh, moved up the ranks and started playing junior football. I think I started playing junior football when I was 15. I was still at school when I started playing junior football. So, right, so yeah. that, must, that must be quite tough playing juniors at that age. Yeah, because I first signed for Dice Juniors. So I was actually in the process of leaving school. I was actually, I was in that age group where when I turned 15, my, my birthday's in August. So there was like that cutoff date where you could actually leave school at fifth, before your 16th birthday or before your 15th birthday. Um, so I think I had already turned 15. No, I tell a lie, I'd already just turned 16. And I was, uh, I was just a way to go to work. And before that, actually signed for Dice Juniors. So I played for Dice Juniors for, I think it was two seasons. And really good bunch of lads, but we were hopeless. Oh, my God. You know, we were getting annihilated <laughs> week in, week out. And it was, a, it was a proper shift playing for Dice. But a really good bunch of guys, a really nice setup. And I really enjoyed staying there. And I actually regret leaving them because um, after there, I just became a journeyman until I eventually moved down to London. So 
I should have stayed with Dice Juniors because they're just a really good bunch of boys. It was just the results. You know, we were getting hammered every week. Uh, it was it was uh, starting to grind on me slightly. I can I can imagine that. Uh, you know, we've 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 all watched uh, mid nineties Aberdeen teams, so we know how much uh, you can get ground down by terrible performances and awful results, don't you? Yeah. Uh, the um, so given when you start, you, you went to your first game at uh, the end of eighty uh, one. So the cup winners, cup one in Gothenburg. Uh, how fresh is that in your memory? How much of that do you remember? Oh, it, it, it's it, nothing has faded. I, I've been extremely lucky where I've been able to through the various projects that I've done over the years, I've been able to take a trip down memory lane and recall all these memories that have sort of laid dormant at the back of my head for many years. And my father took a cine camera with him to Gothenburg. And a few years ago, uh, an old friend of mine who I used to work with at Satanta, she's now a, an, an award-winning producer, and she was doing a documentary. She was making a documentary about the Gothenburg trip. And uh, I offered her the, the cine footage because I had never seen it before because it was still sitting on, on, a, on an old reel. So she got it um, transferred to a DVD for me and it absolutely blew my mind. Um, it, was a, it was quite a tearful moment because by that point I'd already lost my father. Um, and sadly, my father was not on the footage at all, which I was really gutted about. Um, but the, the footage is amazing. And, and since then, many other production companies have approached me and asked me if they can use the footage as well. And Aberdeen Football Club have obviously asked me a few times if they can use it. And I'm more than happy for people to use it because the footage really is fantastic. So, no, honestly, Paul, nothing, nothing has faded from that trip. I was, I was 10 years old and, you know, when I think about it, it was, my God, it was, what, 39 years ago for me now? It's just, uh, and yeah, nothing's faded. And I, and I really hope it never does. What was it about that team? As, as When you're 10 years old, you're watching that team, beating Real Madrid, beating Hamburg, winning the league, winning the Scottish Cup. You must think, well, this is what football is. You know, it doesn't I end. didn't know anything different then for Aberdeen to win the league, the Scottish Cup, the League Cup, and win games in Europe on a regular basis. Because my first full season was 1982-83, and we hardly ever missed a game. We, we went to every single game in that Cup Winners' Cup run, home game, until the semi-final where my dad just could not get a ticket. And I think we could have sold Pataudry out three times over for that game. So... I was devastated that I missed that game. But I didn't know anything different, Paul, because we were winning games week in, week out. We were beating the greatest teams to come out of Europe. And for me, going to a cup final, it was just a given that we were going to win. I didn't know anything different. So from an emotional point of view, I would go to these games fully expecting us to win them. And I suppose a little bit of... Um, Childhood innocence plays its part in that because I, I'd hardly ever seen my team lose a game of football, never mind a cup final. I didn't see Aberdeen lose a cup final until 1993 was the first cup final that I attended that we lost because I wasn't able to get to the 87 Skull Cup final or the 88 cup final. So I went to every single cup final from 1982 up until 1987. I never saw Aberdeen lose a game. And then they lost those two cup finals. And then I made sure that I got to the third final in 89 and we won it. Then we win the Scottish Cup the year after. And then it was, I think it was 92. It was when we lost, I think it was the League Cup final and Gary Smith scored the own goal. Um, I think it was 92, wasn't it? Because by that point I'd moved down to London. So that was the first time. So that's 10 years worth of football that I had not seen Aberdeen lose a cup final that I physically went to. So it's just, just the most amazing time. And my whole, my whole mindset was every time we went into a game, I fully expected Aberdeen to win, no matter the opposition. Um, obviously, you, you alluded to about moving to London. Um, so was that the early 90s that you moved down to London? I moved to London in 1992, the summer of 92. So 
uh, obviously some of the jobs you were doing at that time, uh, you did a bit of modelling, uh, some music. So there are jobs that involved a lot of travelling, um, yes. I'm assuming um, into Europe, possibly even further. How is it to follow football in the early 90s when you're in Asia or Central Europe or something like that? Difficult. And a lot of late night phone calls from hotels to my father. Um, there's, there's one thing I will never forget. I was, when I was in the band, we were flying to Japan. We were doing a tour of Japan and Aberdeen were playing while we were flying. And I asked the, the purser if she could ask the pilot to radio any tower, because we were flying over Europe at the time, if he could radio any tower in Europe and see if he could find out the Aberdeen score for me. And, he, and, and the guy did quite amazingly. And he invited me into the cockpit because that was the time when people could still get into the cockpit. And I used my father's connection in aviation and all that kind of stuff to, to get into the cockpit. So they, they, they sat me in the jump seat for about half an hour as we flew over, uh, as we first entered Russia, because we went up around that way. And uh, so I sat in, the, in the, the jump seat for half an hour. And this guy was absolutely astonished that I had the audacity to ask him to radio any tower to ask for a football result. And he said in 30 years of flying, it's the first time that he'd had such a request. Um, so I remember doing that. And I remember being in Japan because we were there for a good couple of weeks. And the time difference is, uh, is obviously many, many hours and having to phone my father in the middle of the night and asking him for the Aberdeen score. So I was able to do it that way. Also through, you know, when we, we toured Europe a lot, and it was actually not that difficult to be able to find out the result. It was a case of just buying a local newspaper. So if we're in Germany, you know, uh, Builder, I think is the name of the newspaper. I was able to get the result without any hassle. Even I remember when we came to Austria and we had to travel on the train from Vienna to uh, Graz, if my memory serves me correctly. And even the local Austrian newspaper carried the Scottish results. So it wasn't actually that difficult to be able to find out the results. It was just a lot of late night calls to my dad. Yeah, I suppose the calls are more, a bit more detailed than just seeing the score. Like you find out that we beat XYZ 1-0, but actually we got battered and it came off the centre half's arse and went in, you know. Trust me, back then, to call from a hotel was not cheap. So it was literally, <laughs> Dad, what's the Aberdeen score? Right, okay, great, thanks. I'll see you when I get home. You know, it was literally a 30-second yeah. phone call. <laughs> when, when, when you were doing all that at, at that uh, period of time, were you, did you get a chance to take a break? Because obviously, um, particularly with the, being in the band, I suppose, the schedule was probably pretty grueling from what you from, from what you see from like things on the TV nowadays. So was there a chance to ever get back and, and go home and see a game? No, it's a simple answer to that. I, I, in the whole time that I was in the band, I hardly had any days off just due to our schedule. What I was able to do was to get to the odd away game. And I particularly remember this game. We played Celtic at Celtic Park and we were in Glasgow doing a gig. But we decided to drive up to Glasgow the day before the gig. And it just so happened that Aberdeen were playing Celtic at Celtic Park. And the reason I remember that game is because Lee Martin, who used to play for Manchester United and scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final, it was his debut for Celtic that night. And I remember it because Lee went on to become a really good friend of mine when I worked at Manchester United for a few years. Um, and we drew that game 2-2, if my memory serves me correct. And uh, we were staying in the... You know, the really tall Hilton Hotel beside the M8 motorway? We're staying in there. Yeah. So uh, my tour manager very kindly organised for me to get down to the stadium and uh, went in, obviously, with all the Aberdeen fans, which was fantastic. I had a really, really good laugh and people coming over and there was a lot of really good banter, just good fun. You know, there was a lot of Mickey taking, as you would expect, but nothing that was... Um, personal, nothing that was vindictive, nothing that was nasty. It was all really good fun. And I really, really enjoyed it. Plus Aberdeen played really well that night. Um, so, so that was an odd occasion that I was able to get to a game. 
I I remember just before we released our first single, we were asked to tour with the Radio One Roadshow. And we were deemed as being the warm-up acts before the, the show actually went live to the nation at 11 o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was. And we played the Aberdeen Lynx and it was absolutely mental. The place was rocking. And while we were signing autographs around the periphery of the, the perimeter, um, because there were, there were tens of thousands of fans came, came to see us, which was really brilliant. A uh, Sunday Mail reporter came over to me and said, look, how do you, have you got time to, to come over to Pataudry? Do you fancy getting your photograph taken with Willie Miller? So as you can imagine, Paul, I did not need a second invitation. So I went over to my tour manager and said, look, I've just been asked to do this. Um, I know we're due to go to Dundee, but I'm telling you right now, we're going to Pataudry right now because I'm going to meet my hero. <clears throat> so went over to Pataudry. And again, it's a day I've never forgotten because we got to Pataudry and we were just, we were walking into what was the, you know, the main entrance on the main stand. So some of the fans had followed us over. We got out of our tour bus and we got swamped by all these fans. And I'm trying to make my way into the ground and Ian Jess came out. As <laughs> Ian Jess came out, they all, they all went from swamping us to swamping him. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. So I was left standing like that. The hell's going on here? <laughs> and then I went, ah, it's Ian Jess, yeah. right? Um, I get it. And it's, again, it's it's a, it's a memory that's never faded. And yeah. went into Pataudry and got met by one of the PR guys and the and the reporter as well. And was allowed to quickly look in the changing rooms. I got to look in Teddy Scott's kit room, which I hadn't been in for many many years, and. Uh, got shown into the boardroom, which I hadn't seen for many, many years. The other boys were not interested. They, they just came came along, just went with the flow. And then it was a case of getting out onto the pitch. Uh, they gave me a ball. I had a bit of a kickabout on the pitch. So I was absolutely living the dream. And then the next thing I see from the player's tunnel, from the entrance, I see Willie Miller, Drew Jarvey, and Roy Aiken. And they all come out and they come over and they say, hi, how you doing? And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm you know... Roy Aiken wasn't a hero of mine because obviously he played for Celtic, but what a charming man he was. But there I am faced with my all-time football hero and Drew Jarvey, who's also a club legend. And I, it, it was a really strange feeling for me because only 20 minutes later, I've been in that position of being, and don't think that I'm trying to sound arrogant here. I'm not, I'm just trying to sort of paint a picture. I was the one that was being idolized because of the position I was currently in with the band. And then all of a sudden here, I am now in that position of idolizing somebody else. And it was a really strange feeling for me at that time. It was absolutely bizarre. That sort of switch, that reversal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so chatting on with Willie and Drew and Roy, and it was, just amazing. And then all of a sudden, Willie says to me, come on, let's have a kickabout. And there I am, having a kickabout with Willie and Drew and Roy on the pitch. You know, the other boys by that point, I've, I've, they've gone back inside, they couldn't care less. And here's me thinking, right, you know, first and foremost, control the ball, you know, get a good first touch and ping it back to him and make sure you ping it properly. You know, because I wanted to show them that I could play a little bit. <laughs> Oh, completely. I remember, um, oh, it must have been about 90, do you know what, it was 1993, it was just before the Scottish Cup final in 93, and I was in a youth supporters club, it's called the Don's Young Stars, and uh, they had like an open day at the Codre, and they had all these drills set up, um, yeah. and you, and I, I was like, like, I was hopeless at football, um, but I was like, if I score a goal here, maybe I'll get signed and all that sort of stuff, and a similar thing happened uh, that you did, so there was like, players sitting in different parts of each stand signing autographs and there was like Mexi Patalainen was there, Lee Richardson was there and then in the corner just vivid in my mind in the corner sitting in the wayside of the south stand was Ian Jess and there was like three people at Mexi, four people at uh, Rico and then must have been about a hundred people at Ian Jess it was just that that exactly the same thing he was just such a an idol at that time obviously being local and the way he played and everything like that it just it's just it's just mad. Um, I have, I'd actually forgotten about that until you were, you were talking there. Um, so when you moved into the media, um, 
what was your first sort of media role? So when I left the band, I, I took a little bit of time off and then I, I needed to I needed to get back to work because sadly I was left in, in financial dire straits after I left the band. So it, it was a very, very difficult period for me. But I, I took a conscious decision that I wasn't going to let it uh, get a hold of me. Um, so I actually... I, 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 disappeared for a wee bit and studied. I just went away and studied. So I became a, a qualified Scottish Football Association coach, um, became a qualified fitness instructor. And as the, you know, as things were starting to get really quite desperate, I, I just had to swallow my pride and get back to work. Um, and thankfully I was able to do that. So I got myself a little part-time job working in a, just a really small private gym in a hotel just outside London. And it suited me perfectly. So through that, a friend of mine was a TV presenter with a channel called Granada Shop, which was a shopping channel based in Liverpool. And they sold all the um, products from the Littlewoods catalog. And he called me one afternoon and said to me, look, we desperately need a fitness expert. Would you be interested in coming on the show and talking people through how to use this fitness equipment. And I was like, yeah, of course, because I really fancied getting into TV because I'd, I'd done a couple of bits and pieces here and there, like done the Disney Club and the Big Breakfast and Soccer AM and all that kind of stuff. So I quite fancied it. And through that, um, Andy brought me up to, to Liverpool and I, I appeared on the show quite regularly. And within a matter of months, the producers approached me and said, look, why don't you try this on your own? So you don't have the presenter with you. You actually present the slot on your own. And I was like, of course, let me give it a bash. And it was fantastic for me, Paul, because it was my education in how to, to work around the technicalities of TV, at live TV. So it was a really, really good grounding for me. And just by pure chance, there was a producer from Granada and Granada had just been commissioned by Manchester United TV to produce a youth magazine programme. And he so happened to be in Liverpool doing a little bit of work experience with Granada Shop, saw me and approached me and said, look, would you like to audition for the presenter's role? Because we're looking at a, a male and a female. And I said, of course. Went over to Manchester, did the audition, and thankfully I got the job. And then I started working for MUTV. So in the space of about a year, I went from working in, the, in a gym to then working for Granada Shop and then making the breakthrough into Manchester United TV. And that was where I really learned how to be a proper football broadcaster. And again, very much like the shopping channel, it was the perfect grounding for me. It was my education into football and broadcasting. And I loved it. I had five years there and I absolutely loved it. So I was very, very lucky and very fortunate that I was able to, um, to get into that position just by pure chance, really. So, so when you got to MUTV, um, how long were you there before you were angling to meet Sir Alex? First day on the job. <laughs> Honestly, I, could, I couldn't believe it. When I got the job, um, I signed my contract and the, the executive producer said to me and to, to my, my fellow presenter, a girl called Jeannie, um, right, first job, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, Cliff Training Ground, you're going to interview Sir Alex Ferguson. And I just, what? Oh my God, what? So didn't sleep the night before, as you can imagine, and got down to the Cliff Training Ground that morning. I was there by eight o'clock because there was no way I was going to be late for the boss. And I was a nervous wreck. Honestly, Paul, I was a nervous wreck. And Jeanette, who, you know, was absolutely fantastic, just full of life and a, just a lovely, lovely person with a great personality. She went, bang, what's the matter with you? Just calm down. And I was like, I can't, I, you know, I've got butterflies in my stomach. He's my hero. I'm just away to meet one of my heroes, you know. He was the manager when we won the cup, winners cup, for God's sake, you know. Now, I hadn't seen Sir Alex for many, many years. So, the, so just let me take you back so people understand the history of it. So my grandfather was a very well-known football journalist in Glasgow before he died. 
And he was very friendly with a guy called Mr. Todd, who was the chairman of St. Mirren for many, many years. And William Todd phoned my grandfather and asked him for his opinion on who he thinks should be the next St. Mirren manager, because Mr. Todd was, was looking for a manager. And my grandfather gave him one name. He said, Alex Ferguson. Look at Alex Ferguson at East Derlingshire. I think he would fit your bill. So the next thing, Alex Ferguson gets the job at St. Mirren. So my grandfather played a sort of a pivotal role in that appointment. So I thought to myself, I, I need to be able to break the ice with Sir Alex. Now, I'd met him as a kid. He made the connection with my father, then made the connection with me. But I hadn't seen him since I was a, since I was a kid. So I thought, right, how do I break the ice with him? Right, let's use that story. Let's use my grandfather's name. So I'll never forget it. He, he, he came into the room and immediately there is a presence. You can feel his presence immediately. And my heart went into my mouth. It just, oh, you know, and, he, and he, he makes you want to catch your breath because he's got that much of a presence about him. And he came over and he was, how you doing? It's really nice to see you and congratulations on your roles. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys can do. And he was utterly charming. So I introduced myself and, I, I, and he went back and I went, yeah. And he, I said to him, you, you, you know my, you, know, you knew my grandfather well. And he said, who's your grandfather? And I said, John Begg from, from Bishop Briggs. And he went, the freelance football journalist. And I went, yeah. And honestly, his whole body language changed. And those piercing eyes just all of a sudden went from piercing to warm. And he, he, he said to Jeannie, he said, could you just give Ali and I a moment? And he says, guys, just hang on two minutes. And he took me up to his office and he made me a cup of tea. And for five minutes, we waxed lyrical about my grandfather. And he told me wow. what a great man he was, how fond he was of him. He was asking after my uncle who took over my grandfather's agency when he passed away. And it was just the most amazing five minutes. And he gave me some great advice about what I should do, how I should be careful, what to be mindful of. We then went back downstairs, we did the interview and Jeannie just absolutely charmed him. She was just brilliant. And uh, he really, really enjoyed the interview because if you know when the boss enjoys interviews because afterwards he says two very important little words. He'll always say to you, well done. If he thinks right. you've done a good interview with him, he will say, well done. So, and I knew this. So I was at the end of the interview, I was almost pleading in my own head that he would say these two little words and he did. And honestly, I, I, Jeannie and I went home with such a buzz. It was such a buzz. And we went straight to the office and uh, our boss pulled us in and said, look, just had the the press officer on the phone saying what a great job you did and really, really well done. You've, you've made the perfect start. And it was just amazing. And from there, my relationship with Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, just continued to build. And I only saw him, you know, I was there for five years, but I only saw him maybe a dozen times. And he was always absolutely brilliant with me. He would come over and he would ask me how I am, how my family was, how my father was doing, how I was getting on. Uh, on the odd occasion, he would say, I watched you on the show and uh, you did very well, but be mindful of this. If you get caught in this situation, this is how I advise that you, you handle that situation. Always be aware of the players. Protect the players. First and foremost, you represent Manchester United, so you represent the players. Look after them. Be mindful of that. He only told me that I'd made a couple of mistakes and how I should be careful going forward. Honestly, Paul, and thankfully, you know, my relationship with him continued even after I left MUTV. He found out my father died and he wrote me a very touching letter. Uh, he wrote the forward for my book. And um, yeah, I've been very, very lucky where on the odd occasion I've actually been able to call on him. So he's just the most amazing man. He really is. That, um, the fact that he's, he's talking to you about, oh, do this, protect the players and all that sort of stuff. Like, at that time, Manchester United were really becoming the Manchester United that everybody's like aware of now. Um, so, like the fact that the, fir the first team manager is talking to the the guys presenting the um, club channel, it's like he probably doesn't need to do that. But I suppose if you interviewed a player and asked the wrong question, and the player looked not, maybe not daft, but you know, caught them off guard or something like that. 
he's he's going to be like that as well. He's going to come down on you as well. Did you ever, maybe not yourself, but did you ever hear about when he was maybe oh, the, the boss chapped the door and uh, he he uh, gave us an earful. Oh yes, and trust me, it's <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. Oh my god, I remember once he I was sitting in Carrington, and I was down to interview a player. So I was sat next to a reporter who was also down to interview a player. So I was interviewing a player for our show and he was, the, the reporter was interviewing a guy for the news programme that was going out that evening. So in Carrington, it's all, you know, you walk into the main reception and then the seats just to the, the right-hand side of reception. And then there's like a staircase that comes down from the boss's office and there's a balcony at the top. So he can see everything that's going on and everybody that walks into Carrington. And the the boss at the time of MUTV had, had, had made a made a bad call, made a really bad call. And so Alex found out about this and went just, he, he grabbed the reporter and he just gave him the hairdryer treatment. And it was, it was actually quite frightening to watch. But so Alex was right. He was absolutely right. Um, I thought to myself, he, he shouldn't really be directing it at the reporter. Um, I understood why he was, because the reporter's there face of MUTV, point of call, et cetera, et cetera. But I actually felt quite sorry for the boy because, you know, he was just a, a gibbering wreck by the time Sir Alex finished with him. So that was quite frightening. Um, I really saw his temper that day. And, you know, I was very lucky that, you know, I became good friends with a lot of the backroom staff at Manchester United, particularly Mike Phelan, um, who obviously went on to become Sir Alex's number two and is now obviously working with Ollie. So Mike occasionally would invite me down to training because what I, what I wanted to do was gain more of an understanding of what they would do in training and how they would take the exercises and the drills they do in training into a match so that I was more versed when I was presenting a show, especially on a Monday night when we would analyze the weekend's game. So I always wanted to be, to be more educated and more versed in, in what I was talking about. And there was a couple of times where players maybe weren't fulfilling instructions or weren't doing as they were being asked or maybe a tackle or two had flown in and Sir Alex absolutely lost the plot. And again, it was really quite frightening to watch, but it was also fascinating to watch because his style of management, as we all know, is very inspirational. And he was just an incredible man to watch at close quarters. So I was very, very lucky that I was able to do that on the odd occasion and watch the players respond to his instructions. And occasionally he would come out a few minutes after training would start and you could see them sort of puff out the chest and, you know, maybe the, the gain a yard of pace, you know, when he would walk out. So I, 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 honestly, Paul, I'm in such a privileged position to have been able to do that um, and experience that, that I've never taken it for granted because I know that many people would give their left arm to be in that position. So it's it's something that I've always been very acutely aware of is how fortunate I have been throughout my career. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, the, so at that time you're at um, MUTV, you're watching a pretty great Manchester United side, possibly, possibly the best one in that era. Arguably. But then up at Pitodre, things are not great. Uh, what, is, uh, what are your memories of that time from the Dons? Because it was we had relegation fights and obviously the '95 season with the the playoff and everything like that. What, what are your memories of that? You know, I, I remember the Stenhouse Muir Scottish Cup game just because <laughs> my brother was with me. My brother had come down from Aberdeen. He was with me, and we were watching the old grandstand, you know, with the old ticker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just not, not quite believing what we were looking at. And like, what the hell is going on? How, how, how have we got to this position? You know, we lost the 92 League Cup final. We lost the 93 Scottish Cup final, which, you know, sadly, I both, the Scottish Cup final I missed. I also missed the 93 League Cup final because I couldn't make it because I was with the band. So I was, you know, I was gutted that I missed those two cup finals. Thankfully, I made the 95 Coca-Cola Cup final. 
But that whole relegation season was just, how, how have we been able to put ourselves in this position, given the calibre of player that was actually playing on the park? Because if you, if you narrow it down and you actually take each individual player on merit, that's a bloody good team. But for some reason, they just yeah. couldn't perform on the day. They just couldn't play. And, you know, thankfully through the blogs, I've been able to, to understand a little bit more from those guys that played during that era, why it just didn't work. And, you know, players were saying to me, that they, they just, no matter how hard they tried, they never got the break. Nothing was going right. They they worked desperately hard in training to rectify the, the problems. And, you know, it, it, sometimes it was just a piece of luck for the opposition where a ball would ricochet off a defender's backside and fall in perfectly in, 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 into the position of a striker who's able to score. Or it would, you know, the goalkeeper would make an unbelievable save and it would fall to the feet of a striker who's got an empty goal, you know. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. And I don't know, it was just absolutely bizarre. And it was painful to watch. You know, I was living in London at the time, so it, it was difficult for me to be able to watch the highlights, obviously. Things have changed drastically since then. So I, I wasn't actually able to watch Aberdeen uh, a great deal. I travelled up and, uh, back and forward quite a few times because I was still doing my coaching badges. And um, my father was able to get me up to Aberdeen quite a few times and we were able to go to a few games. But I just couldn't believe what I was watching at times. And I couldn't understand why, with the calibre of player that we had, your Duncan Shearers, your Joe Millers and your Ian Jesses and these type of guys. And we just couldn't play as a team. And it was heartbreaking to see us fall from, you know, and it was only in the space of two or three years after Willie got sacked, you know, that we just went through that whole ridiculous stage of one manager in, one manager out, one assistant in, caretaker out, caretaker in, manager in, manager out. And you're just thinking, come on, what is going on here? Um, and to be honest with you, the ship has never really been steadied since. Um, so, yeah, hugely disappointing, but makes for fascinating blogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll just say that uh, uh, touch on, on, on the blogs a bit. Um, they're really good reads. They're, they're not too long. The, the, that you just you, you lose them. They're a good length. I, I really enjoy reading them. Thank you. And what what made you start that? It was my wife's idea actually. So I wrote my own book, and I was asked to to sort of upgrade the book and update the book. And I, I don't know. I just I, I didn't want to do it. There was just something holding me back, and I still don't really know why. But I just didn't I didn't want to do another run or print another run of books. I just thought. I'm happy with my lot. I'm happy that we've sold out. I'm happy that we've, we've we sold out the print run, that we've done quite well in Kindle. Um, and I think, do you know what? I think I just want to leave it there. And through my wife's job, she works for a digital marketing company um, in Qatar. So she's still in Qatar at the moment. And through her job, she has to deal with a lot of influencers and a lot of bloggers. And she said to me, look, I think you should start your own blog. You, you've got great contacts. You've got good stories. You're very passionate about your football club. So why don't you just give it a go and see, see, see where it goes? And, I, and at first I was a little bit hesitant, um, but then I started doing a little bit of research and looking at other bloggers and I thought, okay, th th there doesn't appear to really be a prominent Aberdeen football club based blogger. So yeah, Miriam's right. I've got good contacts. I just about know everybody at the club and I've been lucky to have experienced many things. Maybe we could sort of tie that all in. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll give this a bash. So for my birthday a couple of years ago, my wife actually um, uh, paid for the page to be designed through a, a, a marketing company that we know in Qatar and they did a phenomenal job for me. And, and just the whole presence of the page when I first went in to have a look at the design and the style blew me away. And it really started to get me quite excited. You know, and then I started speaking to some of the old guys that I've got to know over the years and said, look, you know, if I, if I was to do this project, would you open up? You know, and I, and I had a, 
I had a track of thought about how I wanted to work and how I wanted to be able to attract these guys to speak to me and to open up to me. So I, I wanted to continue my grandfather's legacy and my uncle's legacy, which is trust. And trust is the most important aspect when it comes to the success of the blog. Because if you can't trust me, you're not going to open up to me. So what I did was, through the advice of my wife, I actually wrote the questions down that I wanted to, 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 to ask the subject matter. And I sent them the questions in advance. And I would say to them, look, here are your questions. If there's anything that you're not comfortable with, we don't talk about it. It's as simple as that. Then what we'll do is we'll do the interview. I'll transcribe it. I'll write the piece. And then I'm going to send it to you for final approval. And I give you my word. I am not going to publish this blog until you give me your final approval. And if you want to change things, edit things, add things, take away things, we can also do that. So let's find the common ground. And thankfully, through having that, that attitude towards the work, I would say that I've been able to speak to 95% of the people that I've asked to do the blogs. I've had about 5% of people have turned me down, which is totally fine. I have no issues with that whatsoever. Disappointing, but totally accept it. And um, honestly, Paul, it's, it's one of the best things that, that has ever happened to me because I just love it. I absolutely love it. And I really enjoy the challenge of trying to make each blog different instead of just asking the same bog standard questions. I'm trying to look at each individual and discover their Aberdeen story. And I would like to think that we're on the right track and that we seem to be doing okay, you know, by the, um, the figures that I'm getting, it appears that we're, we're, we're on the right track. So I'm really, really delighted with, first of all, how it's going. And secondly, more importantly, how it's been received, because, you know, I, I, I get fantastic traction online from people who read the blogs and it's really humbling that people go out of their way to message me and leave messages on Facebook and see how much they enjoy the reads. Um, and the fact that, you know, Saltire Energy came on board and, you know, have helped me with, uh, with the support of the page and Texel came on board for a while as well. So I've been very, very flattered by that, I have to say. But the fact that I'm able to sit down like what you and I are doing and, and speak to all these guys, it's nothing but a thrill for me. It really is. It's a thrill. As well as working at MUTV, though, you worked for Celtic TV for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, how was that? You know, was there ever any games, Aberdeen Celtic games, where you were sitting under the desk, <laughs> like cl clutching onto the bottom of the desk because we're, we're getting done or, well, probably at that time more often than not getting done than, yeah. than winning the games? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was... Um, Listen, it was a lot of people have asked me why, why I accepted the job. First and foremost, I had I was recovering from breaking my leg. So I, I, I broke my leg in 2003 and it was a really terrible injury, which left me with a permanent disability. So through that, I was working as a freelancer. And because of the nature of my injury, I lost all my work because I was in a wheelchair, I had, a, I had metal work inserted into my leg. So I was in a really, really bad way. And the money was running out rapidly. I had mortgages to pay, I had bills to pay, I had to make a living. So when Satanta started, um, you know, they got the contract for the Scottish Premier League. They also set up Rangers TV and Celtic TV. And in the summer of 2002, Sorry, in the summer of 2003, while I was still in a wheelchair, I was able to get some shifts on Sky Sports News because I was just desperate to get down there. I really wanted to work for them. It didn't work out due to the nature of my injury. Plus, I was on, I was, I was heavily sedated on. So yeah, in hindsight, I should never have done it, but I just wanted to show the powers that be that I, I desperately wanted to be there. Anyway, through that, um, I was put in contact with the executive producer of Satanta. And I went up to Glasgow, met him. He told me about the concept of Rangers TV and Celtic TV. We had a really good meeting, came back down to Manchester, called me a couple of days later and said that he'd spoken to the executive producer of the club channels and that they wanted to offer me a job as the presenter of Rangers TV. Trust me, my heart sank. And I was just like, damn it. 
because I had aspirations of actually doing what Rob McLean eventually ended up doing. That's why I wanted to be. So I honestly, mate, I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. I just didn't know what to do. And I, I, I spoke to, I spoke to many people and my dad and I chewed the fat over it, you know, late into the night, trying to work out the pros and the cons and all that kind of stuff. And I just, you know, my, my, my heart was saying, absolutely not, no way. But my gut was saying, you've got to get back to work. You've got to earn a living. So I got a call from the executive producer of the club channels. And he said, look, can you come up to Glasgow and have a meeting with me? So I said, sure. So I went up and I was, I was actually on the drive up. I had decided I was going to turn the job down because I just couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it, if I'm being honest with you. I didn't want to be working for Rangers. So I kind of set myself that, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to accept this job. So when I got up to Glasgow, I went into the old Scottish television studios in Cowcaddens, and he sat me down and he said to me, look, we've been thinking about your position and your role. And he said, how do you fancy presenting Celtic TV? Honest to God, man, I could have hugged him. I really could. Because Celtic, I thought I can handle. I can handle Celtic. But I don't think I could come back from becoming the face of Rangers TV. I don't think there'd be a way back for me with the Aberdeen support. And it's my, you know, it's my club, Aberdeen and my club. And I just thought, I, I don't think I can do this. But I think there is a, there's a route through Celtic TV to do this. Now, look, put rivalry to one side, Okay and put the nonsense to one side, this hatred and all that crap, right? I'm not interested in that. I never have been interested in it. I've always been respectful of other football clubs to a degree, yeah? I respected Celtic as a football club and I had many, many friends who were Celtic fans. And I actually thought that even though there is that, there is that undercurrent rivalry which is nasty and there's no place I think in society there's always going to be that but I also think to a degree there was actually a mutual respect between Aberdeen and Celtic fans to a degree so I thought if I concentrate on those positives I think I can get through this so when obviously the the the, the newspapers did their articles about Satanta and the club TVs and I got named as the the face of Celtic TV I was not expecting the backlash that I got particularly from Celtic fans. And it was, some of it was really quite nasty and uncalled for. And I thought to myself, I've got a hell of a job on my hands here to prove to these people that I'm worthy of this position. Because I thought to myself, first and foremost, it's a job. It's all it is, it's a job. I'm a professional sports broadcaster and I still have aspirations of moving up the ladder to bigger and better things. This could be my platform to be able to do that. But I have to prove my professionalism. You know, when I was at MUTV, I had a soft spot for Arsenal. Never ever was my professionalism questioned during my time at Manchester United. So the backlash was difficult. Um, and I found it difficult in the first few months. You know, I was getting letters to, to the TV studios, which were just you could almost call it hate mail you know so I got it to a degree here's an ex-boy band member who's an Aberdeen fan who's now fronting Celtic TV I get it I really get it but I didn't think there was the need for that sort of nastiness about it so through that I just put my professional head on and did the very best job that I could possibly do for that football club and I've got to be honest with you, Paul, I had the most fantastic three years with Satanta and Celtic TV because I made many, many friends. They, the, the people at Celtic were, were fantastic with me because they all knew my background. And, you know, when my father passed away, um, which absolutely destroyed me when he died, the first person on the phone was Neil Lennon. The second person on the phone was Peter Lawwell. You know, Tommy Burns was amazing with me. Gordon Strachan was incredible with me. Danny McGrain, you know, the players were all very, very supportive. Neil Lennon was amazing with me. And it was really humbling for me, you know. Um, 
And uh, you know, the guys from Aberdeen as well, all the people that I was closely connected with with Aberdeen were exactly the same. So, you know, my 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 feelings towards that football club, forget the rivalry, forget that crap, because I'm just not interested in it. You know, and if people want to give me grief because of the way that I'm talking about it now, then then fine, I, whatever. Um, but I've got, you know, I've made so many friends. Jim Craig has become, you know, Jim Craig became my father, you know, he became my confidant, he became my mentor. He helped me, him and his wife, Elizabeth, helped me through that awful, awful period in my life. And um, they were a great pillar of strength for me. You know, I went and lived with them for a while because it, it just tore me apart losing my father. Um, and they really, really looked after me. And the club looked after me, you know. And I defy anybody to, to, to have a go at me now because I used to work for Celtic TV. And, you know, I did get grief from Aberdeen fans. I continue to get grief from Aberdeen fans because I worked for Celtic TV. People think I sold my soul. I did not. It was a job. And that job led me to working for ESPN, which is one of the biggest sports broadcasters in the world. And I moved to Singapore and I met my wife. Now, if I had never worked for Celtic TV or Satanta, I would never have got the opportunity to work for ESPN. I would never have moved to Singapore and I would never have met my wife. And I now have two beautiful little boys. And, you know, my wife and I will be married 10 years this year. I'm still madly in love with her. And that's, that is a sequence of events that started from me getting my job at Celtic TV. So if anybody still wants to give me grief because of that, you can absolutely kiss my ass because my life <laughs> was fully enhanced because I took that job. Plus, Quite right. plus I got to watch Aberdeen every single week because I travelled with all my pals who worked for Satanta and I did not miss a game. I did not miss a game for two years, you know. So <laughs> I met Derek White, Billy Stark, uh, Joe Miller, Willie Faulkner, Billy McNeil, you know, all these guys that had an association with Aberdeen Football Club. So trust me, working for Celtic TV was brilliant for me. Um, it's not like you scored a goal or anything against us in the cup final. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> do, you know, it's, it's, do you know what I mean? It's not, you know, if you were if you were a centre-forward that made the move and then scored a hat-trick against us every game, then I'd probably yeah. be a bit like, boo. But, you know, yeah. you presented the TV channel. I mean, it's just the TV channel. You have, sub- you, you have to subscribe to it. You know, exactly. why would an Aberdeen sub- supporter even subscribe to Celtic TV anyway? Um, but, so, thankfully, I think we've, we've come through all of that now, thankfully. Yeah, good. Uh, so just to kind of wind things up, favourite memories of watching the Dons? Favourite players as well? Yeah, so obviously my, my most cherished memory is Gothenburg and John Hewitt scoring the winning goal. Uh, my heroes were Willie Miller, he still is my hero, and Peter Weir, you know. So, yeah, just uh, fantastic memories, mate. And I just, um, you know, Saturday was a difficult watch, as we all know. So I just hope that yeah. things will improve and things will improve quickly because I'm, I'm a little bit yeah. worried. At the moment. Are, you, um, are you watching the games on Red TV and stuff yeah. just now oh, as well. I, oh, just try and stop me. Um, you know, I've, I've been a subscriber to Red TV now since it first started. Um, so since I think it's 2007, because the first game I watched on Red TV was the Dnipro away game, you know, at four o'clock in the morning in Singapore. So Darren Mackey's header. I've hardly missed a game since 2007 because I'm able to watch it on Red TV. So, um, oh yeah, yeah, just try and stop me. And my wife knows... She always says to me on a Saturday morning, well, Aberdeen playing today by any chance? Oh, yes. Right, okay. So I'll plan something with the kids. But the great thing is now is that Lennox and Harvey are now also getting well into their football. So they don't come and sit with me for the full 90 minutes, but they'll come over. What's the score, Daddy? How are Aberdeen doing? You know, which is great. So slowly they're coming into it as well, which is really nice. That's good. It's good that as well, because it's kind of a thing that I don't know if you, you see it as well, that the passing on of the club from father to son, it seems yeah. to be dying a little bit in the Sky Sports era because people start watching Sky Sports and I'll support Chelsea and I'll support yeah. Man City and all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. The, the, no, the shirt you see in the... Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't want to force it on my kids. You know, I, I've, I've got friends who I think are forcing it on their kids. And I'm, I'm just like, 
you know, I, I like to take a back seat and observe. And I am not judging because I would never judge another parent. Um, you know, I made that mistake when I first became a parent. And I, I, I don't think it's right to, to judge other parents. So um, I decided to do it naturally. You know, I said to the boys, look, if you want to get into football, fantastic. If you don't want to get into football, not a problem. So, but it was natural for me to buy them their kits with their names on the back and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my boys have got the, for Christmas, they got the, the gold black and white strip with their names on the back and the, you know, trying to get it off their back is near nigh impossible at the moment, which is great. But I think thankfully, naturally through me, because they know my passion for it and they're starting to understand that emotion um, as they get older, that I think they are naturally drawn to, to watch Aberdeen now. It's, I think that's a great note to end on, Ali. I really do. Um, this has been a, a lovely chat. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Ali. It's um, been a lot of fun. It's really interesting to talk about your life, your career, your love for the Dons, which is so predominant, as people could see on, from your blogs and, uh, of course, on, on Twitter and Facebook with your, your posts and things like that. Um, and all the best with the blog moving forward and whatever else you choose to do as well. I look forward to seeing it. Hope it goes well. Thank you very much.